Good morning. Welcome again. First uh, Timothy, it's towards the end of the Bible. Short. Don't miss it. First Timothy chapter 1. I'll read to verse 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help. Father, how easy it is uh, to despise your church because of its many problems and failures and weaknesses. And yet, Lord, you have in your kindness given us the church. You have created the church by the power of your word. And so help us as we study 1 Timothy uh, to understand better what it means uh, to know Jesus and relate to Jesus as members of his body. Keep us from shrinking from either declaring or listening to your whole counsel that you've given us in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're starting a new series through Paul's letter, his first letter to Timothy, uh, which he wrote almost certainly toward the end of his life, uh, pretty long after the things that we read about in the book of Acts. Uh, he's writing to Timothy to help him to lead and to strengthen a church that Paul had planted in the city of Ephesus, it's on the west coast of what we would today call Turkey. Uh, earlier we read in Acts 20, Paul talking to the elders of that church before he goes to Jerusalem. This letter, 1 Timothy, like 2 Timothy and like Titus, is directly written to help us see what Jesus wants his church to be like. Our own church has many new people in the last year or so. And we're just about to begin a new round of the congregation nominating and then the elders training and then hopefully the congregation electing new leaders. And so it's really important for us, especially in our own little church, to understand what Jesus' church is supposed to be like, what it's supposed to say and what it's supposed to do. But we live in a world that sees little need for church. Uh, I was driving downtown the other day, and I saw a mural that said, love yourself, and the rest will follow. That's the basic attitude of most modern Americans, I think. 
uh, including many professing Christians. By default, we like to build our lives around what makes us individually happy and fulfilled. And so there's a lot of people who think of religion or of church as something private, uh, maybe as a weird kind of hobby that makes certain people feel good, but hardly necessary, and certainly not something that should tell other people how to live their lives. There are many professing Christians in America who think that they can just have a personal, individual relationship with God or with Jesus on their own terms, according to what's convenient and pleasant and safe. But Jesus, speaking through the New Testament, is quite clear that the church is absolutely essential to God's plan and purpose to bring life and healing to the world as people trust in Jesus. That's what Paul describes here in verse 4 as the stewardship from God that is by faith. That word stewardship means something like plan or purpose. The idea that weekly corporate worship or that other Christians are an optional add-on is something that's totally foreign to the New Testament. We need one another. We need the church because God has created humans as a family. We have sinned and fallen as a family, and therefore God is saving us as a family, what Paul calls later in 1 Timothy, the household of God. Our passage today introduces all this by explaining how important it is for the church to be nourished by sound doctrine. Uh, You could translate that as healthy teaching, uh, to be nourished by it as it accords with the gospel of the glory of God. That's how Paul ended his little introduction in verse 11. In his opening to his letter to Timothy, I think Paul is introducing three things that we need to know about this message of Jesus, this gospel of God that's at the heart of any biblical church's life and mission. First, Paul, I think, wants us to know the source of healthy teaching. He wants us to know a danger to healthy teaching. And finally, I think he wants us to know the goal of healthy teaching, the point of it all. So first, look at verses 1 and 2, the the introduction to the introduction. This is where we see the source of sound, healthy teaching. It's a typical introduction for a, a Roman letter where you have the author's name first and the recipient's name second. Uh, There's a lot of these all over the New Testament, but we should never just blow past them. They're never quite the same, and they're actually pretty important for understanding what the letters are going to be about. Uh, This verse shows us quite a bit about the God who speaks to the world through Jesus' church and Jesus' people. First of all, notice that Paul says he's an apostle by God's command. There's a lot in this passage, in this letter, about how God tells us what to do and how to do it. God does not leave the church. He doesn't leave Christians. He doesn't even leave all of humanity to do whatever we feel like, uh, to do whatever works, uh, to figure it all out on our own. Paul says in verse 5 that the church has received a charge. That's another word for command. He says we've received a charge from God to announce and to carry out his stewardship, to carry out his plan through calling people to trust in Jesus. Paul uses that same word later to tell Timothy that the reason he left him in Ephesus, or actually he says this earlier, he left him there so that Timothy would charge certain people in God's name and with God's authority about what they should and should not be saying about God. 
all through this introduction, the language of God commanding things. So Paul and the church with him have received a commission, a charge from God. But notice too how else God is described, even in these first couple verses. Not as a grumpy boss, not as a capricious dictator, but rather the first thing Paul says about him is that he's our savior. And then Paul says that Jesus is our hope. Not just that he gives us hope, but that he is our hope. In verse 2, Paul pronounces a blessing upon Timothy, wishing him God's grace and mercy and peace. And so you can see that while the church has received a command from God about what it should and should not be teaching and doing, we also have to remember that this sovereign God is also generous and patient and forgiving. Because you see, the church is the realm, the kingdom, where we enjoy God's peace and love as we trust in his son. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 15, which we'll look at next week, he says Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the church exists in this world, he says, as the buttress, as the support for the beautiful truth of Jesus coming to save sinners, uh, which the Bible calls the gospel. It means good news. So that's the source of sound teaching that accords with the gospel, a glorious, self-satisfied God. That's why Paul says at the end that he's the blessed God. That means God's happy. He's happy in himself. The source of all this is the self-satisfied God who gives us a charge not to tell the world that he's grumpy, but to announce his mercy and his love. In Jesus, he can and does forgive our sins. But look then at starting at verse 3, the next couple paragraphs, where you see Paul warning Timothy about a danger to sound teaching that accords with the gospel. Paul says, I left you at Ephesus so that you could charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. The New Testament, all over the place, including the Gospels uh, that tell us about Jesus' ministry, it's always warning us about the danger of false teaching and about how important it is for Christians and for churches to fight against it. Uh, One of the slogans of the student revolutions in 1968 was that it's forbidden to forbid. It's forbidden to forbid. Like we said earlier, many people today think that religion and church is a matter of personal taste and convenience, and that it's totally wrong to tell people what they should and should not be doing. But you can see here in 1 Timothy right away that the church's health and message and mission depend in large part on it knowing when and how to say no, which of course many people won't like to hear, just like the people who crucified Jesus. In Ephesus, there are teachers who are teaching something different than the good news of Jesus coming to forgive sinners, even if they were using much of the same language that the true gospel does. A couple of years ago, we taught through Paul's letter to the Galatians, um, and there you see how Paul is so horrified that this church that he had planted is starting to give into what he calls a different gospel. Uh, he's so worried about it because he says, this gospel leads to hell, even though... When you look at it in Galatians, that false gospel still agreed that Jesus is God. It still agreed that the Bible is true. It still agrees that God is merciful. And it still agrees that believing in Jesus is really important. 
And so you can see here that in Ephesus, the teachers are really into speculating about some kinds of myths and genealogies, probably something based on the Old Testament. Uh, and you see later in the letter that the teachers are promoting some kind of special mystical experience that they can help you have. Uh, they're giving out some kind of special knowledge for an elite few. Uh, and then later we hear about them promoting some kind of asceticism about how, well, real super-duper Christians, they don't get married and they don't eat certain kinds of food. Uh, you should just avoid those things if you want to be a real Christian. Uh, and then in verse 6, it says that these certain people have wandered away into vain discussion. They're desiring to be teachers of the law, which is probably because of where Paul goes next, talking about the law of Moses. And Paul says they're doing it, though, without understanding what they're talking about. It's not that Paul is against all kinds of argument or discussion or even very nuanced disputations and distinctions. You can see Paul all through his letter making many very complicated arguments having very uh, concerned and passionate and angry disagreements. Paul's concern is for something else. He's concerned about things that aren't rooted in what the Bible actually says, not just in argument in and of itself. Um, the early church argued for a couple hundred years over whether or not the Bible teaches that Jesus has a similar essence as the Father or the same essence as the Father. It took them two or three hundred years to iron this out, and it still pops up all the time through the history of the church. And it really then came down to whether or not you included the letter I in a very long Greek word. That was the difference between heresy and orthodoxy. Does Jesus have the same essence as the Father or a similar essence? Sometimes very significant truths depend on very complicated, nuanced arguments. And so controversy and argument is not the problem necessarily, but the problem, Paul says, is that it's empty. It's obscure. It doesn't have anything really to do with what the Bible says, and it doesn't actually promote the health and the good of the church. Today, I think, I was trying to think of examples of this this week, I think this kind of empty speculation and discussion that distorts the teaching of the Bible can come in lots of different forms. Um, the most obvious one to me, maybe not to you right away, was um, the kind of Jewish mysticism that Madonna is into. Um, but maybe just one step behind that, also new agey distortion of Jesus into some kind of universal consciousness or energy. Um, but it's also, today, I don't think it's just hunting around for Bible codes that tell you about Bill Clinton, like I was hearing about when I was in junior high. Um, it's also not about trying to map all of our headlines onto the book of Revelation. Some people are really into that. I think that's generally pretty empty and speculative. Um, this also today could look like reading our own political positions and policies into the Bible, thinking that the Bible is talking about all the arguments we're having today. Um, it might look like just studying and speculating about all kinds of biblical things so that I can be really impressive uh, so that I can destroy other people in arguments. I certainly saw a lot of that studying in the academic world of the Bible. But whatever it looks like today, these false teachers in Ephesus were particularly interested in the Mosaic Law. They saw it as some kind of magic decoder ring that would lead them to higher truths and greater self-discipline for an elite class of super-Christians. That's why in verse 8, now Paul pauses and takes some time to explain what the law is actually for. He says, we know that the law, referring primarily, I think, to the law of Moses, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Even though Paul here is not trying to give us an exhaustive treatment of everything about God's law and what it's for in our world or in the church, Paul is elaborating on one very important role. He's here to show us how we're supposed, it's there to show us how we're supposed to live before God. It's there to particularly show us how we have sinned against God. Paul says that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. Paul says that the law is meant to reveal how we're supposed to live in God's world, to show us where we're not doing that. His point is that it's not for speculation. It's not some secret source of hidden knowledge. Paul is summarizing what theologians would call God's moral law. God's ethical standards for all people everywhere through all of history, which God spoke directly in summary form on Mount Sinai as the Ten Commandments. That's Exodus chapter 20. And so now to explain and to apply the moral law, the Ten Commandments, Paul draws much of his language directly from the Mosaic law, even though many things about the Mosaic law don't apply today in the church. In verse 9, Paul seems to be describing the first four commandments. The first four seem to be mainly about our relationship to God. Think of them as kind of vertical commandments. Paul says that the law is for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and for the profane. And then he unpacks the fifth through the ninth commandments in exact order. The fifth through the tenth commandments, you can think of them more horizontally. They're more about how we relate to each other. You can see the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, There in verse 9, Paul says the law is for those who strike their mothers and their fathers, which might sound pretty far out of left field, but it's actually Paul alluding to a verse in Exodus chapter 21, which is the chapter after God speaks the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 21 and the couple chapters following, God is unpacking specific applications, maybe possible cases where the general Ten Commandments might apply. And one of them, he says, is for kids who hit their parents hard enough to where they're about to kill them. Uh, Paul then goes into the sixth commandment, don't murder. Uh, And then later down, you can see the ninth commandment, don't bear false witness. Paul just kind of gives those pretty straightforwardly. But if we jump back up into verse 10, you can see him describing the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Paul says that the law is also laid down not just for kids who strike their mothers and fathers, but also for the sexually immoral and for men who practice homosexuality. I'm going to slow down here a little bit because, of course, sexuality is a major point of conflict between our contemporary world and the clear teaching of the Bible, including the gospel accounts of Jesus' teaching and his ministry. A lot of the reason that this conflict exists, I think, is because we live in a world that, unlike almost all societies through all of history, we live in a world that no longer really views sex merely as something that you do, but now as something that you are. We don't just view it as something you do, it's now become something you are. We define and imagine our identity and our meaning and our happiness in terms of sex. So much so that criticizing sexual behavior is now viewed by many people not only as cruelty and bigotry, but even as a denial of somebody's very existence. But we also need to understand, uh, sometimes Christians, conservative Christians, can be a bit pearl-clutchy when we're talking about these things. We need to understand that this tectonic shift 
in the way our society views sex and relationships in a marriage. Uh, that didn't happen because of a Supreme Court decision. It didn't happen because of a photo shoot on Vogue magazine's cover. Um, really, I think these are just new expressions of the same basic ideas and assumptions that were really already there in 1970 when that arch-liberal governor of California signed the first no-fault divorce law into law, Ronald Reagan. Same basic ideas have been around for a long time. Paul expresses the seventh commandment with a single word that we translate here as sexual immorality. It's a general term that describes any kind of thoughts or desires or behavior that's outside of God's good and wise intention for sex to be his wonderful gift between a man and a woman who are married to each other for their entire lives. The seventh commandment, and this word here for sexual immorality, speaks to all kinds of sexual sin, not just the cultural war uh, hot-button types. Nothing I or the Bible says should be taken to justify any kind of contempt toward any kind of person struggling with any kind of sexual sin. Some people point out that Jesus never specifically mentions homosexuality in the Gospels, which is technically true, uh, in the same way that Jesus never specifically mentions incest or cannibalism. But leaving aside the important truth that all of the New Testament is self-consciously the speech of Jesus through his chosen spokesman, leaving that aside for a second, we also should remember that Jesus does use this word for sexual immorality, and he uses it a lot. It's a word that both he and the Apostle Paul, as very good Jews, would have known very well, had received a very clear definition in Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20, which gives all kinds of examples of um, ways that sex can go sideways, including same-sex behavior. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is actually alluding to a couple of those verses in Leviticus. He's mainly kind of been camping in Exodus 20 and 21, but here he shifts to alluding to Leviticus. Our translation has it as men who practice homosexuality, but it's actually one word that apparently Paul invented because it appears nowhere in any Greek literature before the New Testament is written uh, except for here and in 1 Corinthians 6, which is also one of Paul's letters. Um, it literally means man better, and it brings together two words from the main ancient Greek translation of Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20. Notice then that Paul is describing the act itself. He's not making any comment or qualification about how old the parties might be, about whether or not there is oppression or exploitation involved, about whether or not we're talking about a committed relationship between same-sex adults, which is actually something that was pretty well known in the ancient world. Uh, we're not the first ones to have these. You can see an example of it if you've ever read Plato's Symposium. He talks about it a lot about uh, adult men who love each other for life. Um, we need to be careful not to explain away the clear teaching of this verse on the seventh commandment. In the same way 
that many of our American ancestors explained away Paul's teaching on the Eighth Commandment, don't steal, in the very next word. He says the law is laid down for enslavers. Like his phrase about hitting your mom or your dad, Paul is getting this word enslavers and this idea, this command from Exodus chapter 21, which not only says that slave trading deserves death, but also that merely possessing or buying somebody who's been kidnapped and presumably also their descendants, that that also deserves death. We rightly today shake our heads at how in 1850, the overwhelming majority of Christians, not only in the South, but also in the North, could have missed something so obvious to us today. We should shake our heads at that. In the same way, I suspect that future Christians will be shaking their heads at how many Christians today are shrugging or excusing at so much sexual sin in our own lives and families and churches. I know how difficult and offensive this is in our world. There's a part of me that wishes this verse wasn't here and that I could just hum along talking about cool church stuff and programs or, I don't know, something a little more fun. Um, But I have some friends who, like some of you here today, struggle very painfully with homosexuality, with issues of transgenderism. And they know that the God who charges his church, who commands his church to teach his moral standards clearly, they know, like some of you here today, They know that the God who commands is also the God of hope and of mercy and of grace. There's a great little article you can find online called Seven Things I Wish My Pastor Knew About My Homosexuality by a woman named Jean Lloyd. She says this to her pastor in that article. She says, continue to love me, but remember that you can't be more merciful than God. It isn't mercy to affirm same-sex acts as good. Don't compromise the truth. Help me to live in harmony with it. Paul said that God's law is good. God's law is good. Since by showing us how we, all of us, not just certain kinds of people, dealing with certain kinds of culture war type issues, it shows how all of us have failed before God And as it does that, it leads us to the mercy of God in Jesus. That's why the law is so good. Having found God's mercy through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God now empowers us to keep his law. We now want to obey the law because we're grateful for what God's done for us. That brings us to our last and our simple final point, the goal of sound teaching. Look back up at verse 5, which I purposefully saved for last. Paul says that unlike these empty speculations, unlike this self-righteousness of the false teachers who miss the purpose of God's law, he says, instead, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. God commands the church to preserve and to teach healthy doctrine, but not for the sake of teaching itself and certainly not as something that's just dry and lifeless. We're not just here just to teach interesting theology. 
Paul says that the goal, the aim of sound teaching is love. It's love. When Jesus was asked which of the Old Testament's 613 commandments were the most important, he said the greatest commandment is to love God with everything that you have. And he says there's another one like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quotation from Leviticus chapter 19. You see, God's law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, shows us the shape and the reality and the nature of true love. Jesus is asked, what's the law about? Jesus says it's about loving God and it's about loving other people. All these commands we've been talking about today, they're really there to show us what real love looks like. In our world, the word love has become something of a wax nose that we like to bend in whichever way fits our personal desires and preferences. But the Bible says that love comes from God because as the Apostle John says, God is love. And God expresses and defines the nature of his love in his law. The aim of the church's message and mission is love. Love for God, love for other people, all of it defined on the terms of the God of love. Believing in Jesus and being part of a healthy church committed to his good news, Paul says that should change you into a more and more loving person. Notice that Paul says here that this love, that's the aim of everything the church is doing, that love, it does not come from willpower, try hard, uh, you know, here's 27 steps, I'm going to beat you up as the preacher, just go out and work really hard. Uh, It doesn't come from legislation. We just got to get the right things passed in Congress and then maybe we'll be in a Christian society. Um, It doesn't come from guilt trips, um, from me making you all feel really bad about what you were doing last night. And it doesn't come from mountaintop experiences. Let's all go out and have a, a nice, you know, warm, fuzzy time with Jesus. Rather, Paul says that this love comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, a faith that is not fake. Because you see, it's the mercy of God in Jesus toward us as sinners and lawbreakers, all of us sinners and lawbreakers. It's the mercy of God that gives us the power to love and the power to change. When you trust in Jesus, God washes your hearts. You receive a pure heart. When you trust in Jesus, God frees your conscience. You're not living anymore, suffocating under the embarrassment and the shame of everything you've done, all your failures. When you trust in Jesus, God heals your hypocrisy. You don't have to fake it anymore. God does all this by his generous grace. And Paul says that's the fuel for the entire Christian life of loving obedience, no matter how painful or costly it might be. And in God's wisdom and sovereignty, some people bear much heavier crosses than other people. For some people, it is deeply, deeply painful to obey these commandments. But God says, I will be there with you in all of it. May we become a church that better helps and strengthens one another toward this goal of love and shows this deathly, dying, suffering world where true love is to be found. Let's pray. Father, help us to remember what the aim of the charge you've given us is, not to become super-duper smart, elite Christians who know lots of stuff, 
not living, flitting about from experience to experience, but rather teach us and shape us in your love. Help us to love you with everything that we have, no matter what it costs us. Help us to love one another, no matter how difficult we might find each other. We need so much help. We need your grace, and we humbly ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.